0: Speaking at conferences can be daunting, especially if you are just starting out. Public speaking can be hard enough without going through the conference talk process. Both Will and I have gone through the process of creating and submitting a CFP or call for papers, putting together a conference talk and making it memorable and engaging. In this episode, we discuss how to prepare for a conference talk from writing the CFP to preparing the slides and making it exciting for the audience. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well,
1: I have been brushing up on my Angular latest. It's what, four or six? I forget which.
0: Six to eight range.
1: Yeah, I didn't look at the version number. I just went through the Tour of Heroes thing again and brushing up on Node and on Node testing. Because I've got an interview later this week, and that's the technology stack that they will be using during the interview questions. Even though that's not my native stack, so it'll be interesting to see how that goes. And I actually am flying up there for that interview, so we will I'll have some more news on that. Other than that, I have the first chapter of my second book is due tonight. So I have to send that off. Actually, I think it may be due by close of business tomorrow, but it's going out tonight because I got so much stuff on my plate that I can't wait any longer. Yeah. And finally, I kind of got my nose busted Friday night. About midnight, smoke alarms started chirping at my parents' house. We were down there visiting. And I decided that it's going to get up on a ladder and just make the thing shut up. And so I climbed the ladder real quick and I hit the button thinking, hey, this is the button that says shut it up. Mm -hmm. It's not. I hit the test button. (laughs) And so it immediately sets off the smoke alarms throughout the entire house. And so I'm like scrambling, reaching up, grabbing the thing, trying to get it loose to make it stop. And it slipped out of my hands and hit me right across the bridge of the nose, left a big mark. Of course, like my dad comes out and he's like, what in the world are you doing? (laughs) I could see your dad Because I'm like that. standing on a ladder, like holding my face. There's a smoke alarm on the floor. It's like. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I can so see your dad. Like, what are you doing?
1: Yeah. You know, it's like brand new house. You know, <laughs> like what? Yeah. Why are you removing the smoke alarms in my house?
0: <laughs> I just thought they looked really nice. I figured I'd take one home. Yeah. Something to remember the occasion by.
1: Yeah. It's the same brand that I've got here that have caused the same problems here.
0: Yeah, I remember.
1: Yeah, the UBS ones. Mm-hmm. It's UBS. But anyway, so how about you?
0: Well, we recorded a video with the worship team from church yesterday. I don't know if that video will be out or not by the time this publishes. If you guys follow me on social media, you can look for that. I'll definitely be posting it. We went up to Mount Juliet to use the piano at uh, one of my friend's churches. He's the pastor there. They have this beautiful piano that he let us use. I was primarily there as the audio tech. But I also got to do some videography. We were trying to keep the team small. So once I had everybody wired up and things, the audio part, I wasn't mixing as they were playing just because I was just recording it raw and then I'll do the mixing later. So all I had to do was monitor. And so I got to do some video. That was really cool. We had two stationary cameras, and then the church has a really nice video camera, and then Alicia. photography friend that works at the church, she had her really nice camera. And then she let me use one of her L lenses, which for those of you that know Canon cameras, the L series is their fancy professional lenses. So I actually got to have like a lens that is worth more than my laptop on my camera. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) That was so cool.
1: Like the old laptop or the new laptop?
0: the new laptop.
1: I was going to say, cause like you could just find a lens in the gutter somewhere that'd be worth more than your old <laughs> laptop.
0: Yeah. So this lens is worth more than my new laptop that we're recording on now. So it was really nice. Afterwards, I took a few photos. Again, if you follow me on social media, I posted those. Just a couple of snapshots. It's a kind of a different type of lens. So I had some adjustments to make getting used to it than, uh, than the ones that I have. But uh it was still really awesome, really cool that she trusted me enough to let me do that. I was the rotating camera person, so like I had this range that I was to like get a few shots here, walk around, hold the camera steady to get a few shots in this other place, and it's really neat. I'm really excited about it. so in less exciting news, I got a pain in the neck, and it is not will this time. <laughs> Yet, well, that's true. That's true. yeah, there's always tomorrow. I went to the doctor today, and uh it's a musculoskeletal issue. Got a chiropractic appointment uh tomorrow afternoon. really, It's been going on since this weekend, but it just got really worse today when I woke up this morning uh took some pain meds that didn't even affect it. I've got limited range of motion. Actually, I've got better range now after going to go into the doctor and then I'm kind of working on it, and then I'm going to the chiropractor tomorrow. It hurts to turn my head to the left right now. So it's it's kind of annoying. Will is watching the video and he's like, if you wondered, that's why I'm rotating the entire seat to turn and look at things.
1: <laughs> I just wondered if you had a zit on the other side or something that you're just trying to hide from me.
0: No, no. That was do- my working
1: hypothesis. I like my idea better.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a funny one. Yeah, that's good. All right, on that, we're going to get into the close of the book for this month in Book Club. We are closing out Power Talk Using Language to Build Authority and Influence by Dr. Sarah Myers McGinty. And closing out this book, Dr. McGinty writes about the differences between the way different people communicate. In chapter 7, she specifically talks about gender differences in the way men and women communicate. And she talks about how the study of sociolinguistics is related to gender studies and how we communicate differently. Going even further, in chapter 8, she looks into cultural differences. Even within the same country, we have several cultures here in the United States of America she talks about the politics of language and how different areas of the country have different meanings for words. And if you talk in a certain way, language from the center is considered normal in some areas where it would be considered rude in other areas in social settings. It's a really fascinating look at kind of How we interact with each other and how our language affects that, and how we can adjust our language to better understand different cultures and different peoples. And finally, she ends the book with a chapter detailing the study of linguistics and sort of its history as a field. It's a really fascinating close to this book on how you can use your language and the way you speak in different settings to gain that authority and to have that power in those settings. I have a link to it in the show notes. Who's talking to us this week?
1: Well, speaking of different peoples and different languages, we've got an email from Brian saying, Hey guys, love the show. I work for a major financial institution as a senior developer. What that really means here is I work in HTML, SaaS, and Angular. Although the pay is probably on par with a software engineer, I find the work very boring. I have some experience with MySQL, PHP, Laravel, but want to take steps towards a software developer role using c .NET, or Java. Java jobs are more readily available where I am. I've always learned new tech by way of online tutorials and books, and am reluctant to start from scratch with school. Wondering what your advice would be on next steps towards that goal. There are Java jobs here where I work, but I don't think I could land a gig without actual experience. I don't think they even have junior developer as a role. Thanks, Brian. So the question is basically, how do I get into Java to such a degree that I have credibility? The first thing is, is you have credibility with your front end stuff. A lot of the back end developers cannot lay out a UI to save their life. I can't.
0: (laughs) That's so true.
1: I mean, I can get by with bootstrap and make people think that maybe You know, I just have bad eyesight or something and I can kind of wing it. So what you do is, is you look for places that are still going to want your front end experience and then you need to have proof of work on the back end stuff. So build some stuff in Java or honestly, PHP and Laravel. I mean, there's a lot of really good opportunities there as well. Another option is the database experience. There's probably some financial institutions using MySQL. Yeah. I don't know that sector as well as maybe I should, but I would imagine that that's a possibility. Basically, what you want to do instead of going, "Hey, I'm going to come in here at parity with the rest of your developers," because essentially you're going head to head with them there. Instead of doing that, go, "Hey, I'm going to come in here and I'm going to supplement what your developers have, and I've got some of their skills as well."
0: Yeah. Now, one of the benefits you have, Brian, is that you know subject matter. So you know The financial world. And this is something, a strength that I had going into the job market, not having any background other than apprenticing with Will, is I knew medicine really well. Now, I did not end up in medicine, though I thought I was going to be able to leverage that. And I I got a lot of interviews in the medical field because of my previous knowledge. I chose to do .NET because I wanted to stay in Nashville. And what it sounds like is you want to stay in your area, so you want to stick with the jobs that... You're doing the wise thing. You know that it's mostly Java, so you're going to stick with that. Now, you probably can find some remote work doing some PHP and some Laravel. But if Java is the direction you really want to go, then I started off doing some cheaper Udemy classes going through courses online, then worked my way up to getting a Plural site subscription. I think it's about $30 a month is what I'm paying for it now. But you can get that and then go through tutorials there. From that point, I would start participating as much as you can in open source. I didn't do that as much as I could have because around the time I started getting to that level, Will started having work for me to do, so I was doing paid work (laughs) for him. Yeah,
1: (laughs) makes a difference on that.
0: It really does make a difference. If you could find a mentor, that would be great. That is the best thing because then they can point you in the right direction and help you out, point you towards open source projects that they know about that need people. Even if you just get on and do documentation or write unit tests for them, that is such a huge help. It's something that developers don't enjoy doing but needs to be done. And you can come in, do that, and learn the system, get some GitHub credit, basically, for making pull requests and getting them accepted. That's the direction I would go, is find those tutorials, do them, try to jump on some open-source projects if you can, and do the things the unit testing, the documentation, the things that other people don't want to do to get yourself in there. And then you know once they start accepting PRs from you and they go, hey, this guy's really putting in the effort, then you start saying, hey, I want to do something. I want to contribute code to this. They're going to be more likely to look at you and go, hey, he's already contributed a bunch of stuff and helped out a lot on this project. So that's the direction that I would go with it. But Brian, we want to say thanks for listening, and that is such a great question. It really is. We could sit here and talk about that for quite a while. Send us an email to waterbottle at completedeveloperpodcast.com because we've got a Complete Developer Water Bottle just for you. And guys, if you'd like your very own Complete Developer Water Bottle, leave us a review on iTunes, or you can comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all our episodes to Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. We're also on Instagram and Tumblr, though I never post to those, so I need to get on that. I post to my personal Insta a lot, but I really should post to our group. Also, check us out on Facebook Live, where we talk about what's going on in the tech world and answer listener questions. Or you could join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com.
1: Whether you've been coding for a while or you're early in your career, putting together a conference talk and proposal is not an easy task. For the more outgoing of us, that would be beach. It's exciting to think about getting to speak in front of a room full of people, but you still have to prepare for the talk. In other words, you've got to get things where they're focused. For the more introverted, it's kind of a way to stretch yourself, to set up a talk and do all this stuff. And it can be a bit
0: stressful. This episode is a listener request. Johan Weigert asked us in an email, and I'm quoting, You've mentioned your conference talking engagements on several shows, and I was wondering if you would consider making a show about how you go about creating your talk and getting accepted by a conference. In this episode, we're going to attempt to answer Johan's questions included in that email. Now, some of the answers kind of blend together Just because they're not completely separate, like where you give your talk is going to impact the topic of your talk. And so there's going to be a little bleed over here and there. But for each one, we'll have some researched information along with a lot of our own personal experiences with creating talks for conferences. So the first question he asks is, how do you go about finding a topic? And what you want to do here is to start with what you're good at doing. This is your power base. Where are your strengths? What do you do best?
1: Yeah, and this can be the stuff that you do daily or what you're specially trained to do. In other words, you want to pick things that other people can't do or don't want to do so that you can get in there and kind of show them something that they don't have.
0: This is the things that you're really good at. So, Will, your first talk was about databases? Yeah, It was based on the episode on why your DBA hates ORMs. Yeah, it's my first conference talk.
1: There's the whiteboarding talk at NSS, I think may
0: have come before that. Yeah. Well, both of those were areas where you were very strong because leading up to that whiteboard talk, you had been mentoring me and every week for a little over a year had been coming up with a whiteboard problem for me to do. And then after that, every month coming up with one for the meetup group we run. Yeah. That was definitely a strength for you. You took something that you were strongest in and did that. I think my first conference talk was around Scrum. Yeah. And having gone through all the training that I did for work on Scrum and just the mentality suited the way I think. (laughs) I'm going to grin
1: and sit here and say, that's explanatory. (laughs) Let's leave that
0: where that is. On that, the next thing you need to do is to look at the areas where you are passionate. Yeah. And passionate can be an interesting
1: thing as well, because I will tell you this, I am not overly passionate in the traditional sense about the whiteboard interview. I think it's a very broken system. And I also think that the way that we use ORMs to talk to databases is broken. So passion, what you have to do with that is you almost have to shift it and go, okay, I'm passionate about fixing this problem.
0: Right. That's the thing. It's the area that you are passionate about. So you said you're not passionate about those, but you are. I've heard you talk on the topic and you are very passionate about how broken that system is. You are very passionate about how ORMs are not the best solution.
1: Yeah, in all cases, at least.
0: What you want to do here is think about the things that you can talk about for hours. And trust me, Will can talk about those two things on end for hours and hours and hours. Yeah, just give me some scotch. (laughs) And here we go. I know because I've heard him do it. Yep. (laughs) The other thing to look at is what do you most look forward to doing in your job? What do you really enjoy doing? This is something that you can look at and go, I really love this. Which, strangely enough, for me, I really enjoy you know the planning and that aspect of it almost as much as I love the problem-solving. The problem-solving is probably the best part, but it's hard to make a talk on problem-solving because it's so varied. Think about the things that you do throughout the day that help you get through the rough parts, the boring parts. So most people, the meetings and things like that, it's like, all right, I tolerate this meeting so that I can go and write this kind of code or I can go and solve this kind of problem. Or because
1: I want to draw squirrels on my notepad over and over again. (laughs) I've been known to do that from time to time. If you're feeling bold, another thing you can do is actually go after an area that you're interested in learning. In other words, use this as a forcing function to make you learn. Mm -hmm. Like when you've got to get up in front of 100 people and talk about something, and right now you don't know anything about it, and you are not going to let yourself quit, you're going to have to learn that.
0: (laughs) Now, this is a bit of an advanced concept in talk creation. Really, the best place for these kind of talks is going to be in like local meetups or user groups. And we do this with the podcast a lot, especially me as I was early in learning. And even still, I will pick something. I remember, oh, what episode was it that I had mentioned doing? And you're like, oh, man. I'll get to that in a month or so. And I was like, no, I mean, I want to do it. And you're like, oh, good luck. Good Good luck. (laughs) Yeah. This is uh, not my circus, not my monkeys.
1: Have fun with that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And it was something that I really wanted to learn. So I was like, all right, we're going to do an episode on this. And I had to put in the effort because I said I was going to do it.
1: Yeah. So you find an area that you want to learn about and then you build a beginner talk. So you're not talking to the advanced people. You're going, hey, here's a beginner's perspective on this. Here's how you get started.
0: Yeah, the easiest way to do this is to maybe create a tutorial or a what I learned doing whatever the topic is kind of talk. Yeah, I've seen some people do this
1: pretty successfully going, I was a C Sharp developer, here's what I learned from Node. Yeah. For instance. Those are really cool. Where you have the bleed over.
0: I've been to a few of those talks and they are really neat because you get these unique perspectives. You get that Node perspective coming in, but you get like a C Sharp view of Node What's really fun is when it's two languages you don't know really well, and one of them's one you want to learn. Yeah. So like, what I learned going from Python to Erlang. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, something where you're like, what? What? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And you're like, I I don't
1: even have a dog in this fight. I just want to see what happens. (laughs) And that's fair. Like, you'll learn a lot. It will force you to grow. And the thing is, is if you emphasize that you're a beginner in this area, people are more lenient. If you make a mistake, they're also helpful. So you'll get more senior developers coming in and showing you stuff. This is kind of your end of the community.
0: I have actually talked to a few senior developers who purposely go to beginner talks in their area just so that they can get a clearer understanding of what people are struggling with in it. Yeah. I've had them tell me, I go to beginner talks at conferences sometimes, just so I understand the struggles that my junior developers are having.
1: Yeah, because I mean, I've done that, right? Like when I was learning .NET, I was dealing with Visual Studio crashing. Mm -hmm. When you use the web forms designer and you drag and drop a button, it would crash because that was 2002, 2003. Yeah, And that's not a problem now, probably. <laughs> we hope not. Well, I mean, i don't never use the designers in there. Like, they burned me forever. But, you know, the, <laughs> I don't have that backing otherwise. I can't work with a junior dev and go, okay, here's the problems you're going to encounter. Let me prepare you for them. Because mm-hmm. it's a different world.
0: Oh, yeah. I remember when you were mentoring me, you were talking about something. I was like, well, why don't you just do this? And you're like, because we couldn't do that when I was learning <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember what it was now, but it was the search function. It was Control
1: Q, where you pop up in, over Solution Explorer and you can start typing in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That was not there, I don't think. Or if it was, I've literally missed it for 17
0: years. Wow. Yeah. I don't remember what it was. I'm glad you do because it, it meant something more to you. I remembered more your reaction. Your, well, because we didn't have that when I was learning. And like that stood out to me as like, all right, this is really cool because it made. The mentoring and interaction.
1: Yeah. Well, it's interesting that I remembered it and you don't.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Because I was like, what? So the other thing with this is by stating that you're a beginner, you'll also set the right expectations for the talk. So people won't be expecting you to answer all their questions and know all the intimate details. You may have that one guy and you just got to keep reminding him. It like At some point or another, almost all of us have been that one guy. Yeah. That's just like, you just don't get it. And it takes a couple of reminders to be like, oh, oh, right, I'm sorry. I shouldn't be asking about expression trees when you said you've only been doing C-sharp and object-oriented programming for six months. Yeah, (laughs)
1: because that takes a hot minute. Yeah,
0: so. And next, you want to look at your intended audience and see what they need or what they're asking for. Honestly, that's how this episode came about. Literally, a listener sent us an email Last week, requesting the topic, it's been a crazy weekend with Will planning on going out of town and me dealing with all of my other obligations that just sort of compiled up this week. When I was looking for an episode to write, I read that email and I was like, man, that is a great question, a great set of questions for an episode. I can do that. And coming off of the Codeland talk, I'm like, I've got some ideas. I want to throw these out there. That is great. He also asked most of the questions we're going to ask. I added a couple in there because I was like, here's some stuff that you may not be thinking about questions. But uh, it was really good. If you know where you want to speak, you can aim your topic for your audience.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's really the key, right? This will help you narrow down the list of topics to something that is actually relevant for those people. So, like, for instance, if it's a user group, that generally will tell you what area to focus on. Again, like Nashville, we have a ton of .NET jobs. We have a ton of Angular jobs. You know that going in, when you go to a user group here, that you probably can hit something in one of those, and you're going to get, like, 80% of the developers.
0: Yeah, So user groups are a bit more specific, so the group will probably be about whatever, like, you'll find the topic there. But the thing with Nashville is you come here, you're speaking at a conference here, except for the fact that RubyConf is going to be here and we have November here because it's Nashville and now everybody comes here. Yeah. actually got to meet one of the organizers for RubyConf when I was at Codeland and she was asking me about venues and places to do stuff in Nashville. And I was like, oh, let me tell you about all the cool places in town Yeah, (laughs) and hope that they're still open because, you know.
1: (laughs) Yeah, because everything seems to be going away.
0: Yeah, all the stuff I know about is going away and all this new fangled I don't know what is coming in. So, well, yeah, really, though, guys, the best talks solve a problem for the attendees. So you got to ask yourself, what problem can you solve with your talk or can you teach a unique way of solving a common problem? Problem-solving is a great way to get a talk idea together. So now we're, we're going to like list out seven steps to picking a speech topic. And these are generic. They're not specifically for tech. But I found them in multiple places online, very similar across the board. So I just wanted to to throw these out for you guys. And I also kind of wanted to get some of Will's comments on them because I know he's going to have some.
1: So the first one is to identify the event and what its goals are. I will say that sometimes you can kind of infer a goal, like you can look at it and go, okay, well, the event's got this goal, but I see these people always having this one pain point, Yeah, which is what I did with the whiteboarding talks at NSS because I'm mm-hmm. like, hey, I know they're all fixing a face plant into this thing and they're probably all scared of it, so let me pitch this talk idea.
0: Yeah. Next, you want to understand your audience and what they're looking to learn, which is what Will did.
1: And I've also noticed that they tend to also ask about just the interview process and they want comfort. Yeah. Really to go, hey, I'm going to survive this and I'm not going to be eating ramen for the next three years waiting on my first dev job.
0: Mm -hmm. Then you need to think about your knowledge and experiences. So what base do you have? And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier is, you know, start with your power base. Right. Where are you coming from? What approach can you make going into this?
1: And the next thing is to look at current trends in the media. So you'll see a lot of, you know, keyword research. You'll see rising keywords in Google. Mm -hmm. And that's probably a good proxy for a lot of media stuff if you don't know where else to research it. I did do a little bit of that when I was researching it. I wasn't nearly as good at keyword research then as I am now. Yeah, Like I knew it was a thing and that was basically the extent of it. (laughs) You know, you can be pretty terrible at it and still hit the mark.
0: (laughs) So once you've done all this research... You need to start brainstorming possible topics. And Will and I have different ways of doing this. I know he really likes to use kind of a mind map type thing. I like to just list them out. It's a slight difference in the way we do things. I like to structure my stuff when it comes out. And he gets better results by free flow unstructured.
1: Right, and then structure it after.
0: Yeah, so it's just a difference in the way our own brains work. You have to figure out what works best for you for brainstorming topic ideas. Honestly, for me, the absolute best thing I can do is a conversation. If I want to brainstorm some ideas, I'll get with Will or one of my other dev friends and be like, hey, let's go have dinner or something and just like shoot off some ideas. Let me bounce some ideas off your head. And through that conversation, that back and forth is where I get the best topic ideas.
1: Yeah. And it's the same kind of deal for me as well. Then the next thing you want to do is you want to narrow the list down to the top three that you want to speak about. So usually these are the top three that fit in that intersection of topics that you know and are passionate about. Mm-hmm. Cause you're going to get like a scatter of a lot of stuff that some of it you're not going to feel real good about. We have stuff on our Kanban board right now that I'm like, I look at and I just kind of groan. <laughs>
0: So you see, guys, this is exactly why I wanted to talk about these seven topics, because I knew Will would throw something out there that I wasn't even thinking about. That scatter diagram is it. I love that because he's right. You want to throw out all these ideas and then look in that area that is, what do you know? What are you passionate about? What does the audience want to hear about? Or if you don't know it, is it something you want to learn? Right. So like you've got a little crossover there, but... Still, yeah, you want to look at those and narrow it down. What I tend to do is I stop here. I know that sounds bad, but I like to make three or four talks a season. And then I submit to a bunch of conferences, all three or four talks. And so I don't do the exact same talk at every conference. Sometimes, like this year, I'm doing one talk at two conferences, another one at a different conference. So it's like it's spread out. That way I get a little variety in what I talk about. But I also only have to create three to four per season.
1: Right. Whereas apparently what I do is I write a book.
0: Yeah. Well, that's more your style. Yeah. But speaking of that, though, the final one is to take that group and make a choice and stick with it. Then build on that.
1: And you're going to almost have like a feedback loop, too, because like you'll put a topic out there and your audience will change it yeah. over time because of the questions they ask. Feel free to like let that evolve because that's part of it, too.
0: That's very true. So next,
1: let's talk a little bit about how you find relevant conferences. I mean, this is something a lot of people struggle with because half the developers out there don't know that there's a conference in town until the conference is already over and they see somebody with swag on their laptop.
0: Yep. So the best place to start is your local user groups, your schools or the conferences close by. Really, the best place to learn about speaking opportunities is meetups and user groups. Usually the local groups are looking for speakers because they meet every month.
1: Yeah, and they got to find somebody.
0: Yeah, I'll be speaking at, actually need to get back to them about when. I'll be speaking at the Murfreesboro dev, borough.dev here in a few months. Nice. Just because I saw them on meetup and I wanted to go to one of their events, but then my flight got delayed and I missed it. But they invited me to their Slack anyways. And when I posted, oh, yeah, I'm conference speaker, podcaster, like all the stuff I do, people recognize me. They're like, oh, hey, will you come speak? And I'm like, yep, easy <laughs> enough. Yeah, for the rest of you guys, for the non-podcasters in the audience, I guess, the way to do it is to go to your local groups in your meetups and just talk to people, like especially the organizers. Because if you tell them you've got a topic that you want to talk about, they will be overjoyed. They're constantly looking for people.
1: Especially if you take them out to lunch and you go, hey, help me plan this a little bit. Yeah. like That's the way to do it, right? You can get buy-in and you can make sure that you're hitting what they want for their group anyway.
0: You can even get practice with a talk in a smaller environment. And you don't have to take our word on that. Scott Hanselman did this. He was the closing keynote up at Codeland. and. He actually went out to a local user group the day before the conference and gave the talk to get a practice run of it. Yeah. And it's just like, if someone like him, if someone programmer famous...
1: If he can do it and it works for him still at that level, it'll probably work for you.
0: Yeah. He's doing something right because he's getting invited to come and do keynotes. and He's getting paid. He's getting paid to do this stuff. So if that's what he's doing and it's working... Then I'm like, all right, I'm going to start doing that. And that's where I got the idea for this, the practice with the smaller environments. It does two things. It helps the groups locally, wherever you're speaking, to go and do that. But also it gives you that extra practice. The other thing is, local conferences usually announce when they open their CFPs to user groups.
1: Yeah, another option is schools and boot camps. A lot of times they have local developers come in to speak at their classes. This is how I got in at NSS. We had a conference booth next to them, what, three years ago? Yeah. It seems like it's been another lifetime almost, because (laughs) I feel like I've always been speaking and I haven't. But that's how I got in there. I just kind of started talking to them and that got me a start. A lot of these places also host conferences of their own or they're in a location where conferences tend to happen. At the very least, they have a huge network of people who are trying to get people to come to conferences so they know what's going on.
0: Next, you want to talk with speakers at the conferences you attend. Even if you're not a speaker, they will help you learn the process. I have yet to meet a conference speaker who wasn't excited about someone wanting to become a speaker. Yeah, because
1: they recognize another tortured soul that's going through the same (laughs) process and they don't want it to be as
0: bad for you. That's so true. Also, a lot of them like to attend conferences and hear other speakers. So they want you to be your best. And if you've got a really interesting topic or something that they find fascinating, they're going to want to help you get in so that they can go listen to it. I know that's a lot of times the way Will and I are. We meet a lot of people with a lot of really fascinating ideas or things they want to talk about. And we're like, oh, hey, let us help you. We can introduce you to people. We want you to do this because we want to hear it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got to bear in mind, the speakers
1: get value from learning stuff too. Yeah, There's absolutely no reason not to involve them as much as you possibly can and to contact them and get help.
0: Yeah, because they've, they've been through it. And they also know which conferences are available and they're likely to know which ones are open to newer speakers. Like I spoke at Codemash because speakers at Music City Tech told me, hey, Codemash is a really great place to get into a larger market because they are open to newer speakers. It was other speakers that told me about that that is the whole reason I even applied there. And I got to go, and it was awesome. Speaking of applying, the other thing you can do is sign up for email lists of conferences.
1: Right, because they're going to market their conference. And so you might as well go ahead and get on that list and that's a little bit more passive because you're not going to have to try to remember when these things are. And sometimes they like to move stuff. And if you just get on their list, they'll tell you because they're trying to make it so that they don't lose their hind end by hosting a conference.
0: Some even have lists specific for speakers that send out reminders of the CFP, the start dates and end dates, and other things like that. Also, guys, a lot of us are on a lot of email lists. So what you want to do is be sure to check your emails from conferences, maybe flag them just to look at that. Most of them don't send stuff out unless it's important. You know, at least the ones that I've been involved with do not flood my inbox.
1: Right. And they usually don't sell the lists or anything either.
0: Yeah. Every now and then I'll get an email that I'm like, yeah, I really don't care about that from a conference. But I personally am just like, I'm not interested in that. But I know most of the people on the list probably are. So next, you want to expand out to the surrounding area or even across the country. This kind of goes back to when we were talking about starting local. Once you've spoken at some local events, start looking to conferences within driving distance.
1: Right, because that's a lot easier and it'll open up events in those locales for you to speak at. The other thing you're doing here, too, is you're kind of taking a smaller slice of the market. So, like, you and I would not be competing with Scott Hanselman. Yeah. Right? Because that's a bit intimidating.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that is true. And finally, on this, start applying to international conferences early. Get that international speaker badge. It's one of my goals, if not this year, next year, is to get that. I've applied to speak at uh, NDC London and I'm going to apply for some more international. Even if it's going up to Canada or down to Mexico, Yeah, I'm going to get that international badge. That's a goal.
1: See, my goal is more like the Eastern European slash Russian.
0: Mine is just any international conference at this point. Then I'll specify, but I'm just like anywhere right now. But y'all, go big. Apply for conferences in countries that you wish to visit. Yeah. Do like Will. Even apply for countries where you don't speak the language. I know several... English speakers who don't know the language, but they go and they have translators for them.
1: Yeah. A lot of times you'll find a lot of the tech folks speak English anyway because of the size of the American market. They almost have to in a lot of cases. Yeah. That can help you too. So don't feel limited by the language barrier, I guess is the thing there. Right. Let's talk about the thing that's always been a pain point for me, and that is structuring the CFP or the abstract. This is not my favorite part of the whole thing.
0: Yeah, I spent a lot of time working on this particular bit just because it's something that has been a pain point for me as well. I have not gotten talks selected because my abstract or CFP was not on par. And when I talked to the organizer, he said, man, when you told me about that a few months ago, I was so excited. But I read your CFP and I was like, I don't know about that, man. Yeah. We'll talk a little bit more about that. I've got that story in here a little later. What you want to do is begin by looking at the event and the call for papers or the CFP. That CFP will have the relevant information about the talk. This includes the length of the talk, the type of environment you'll be in. It'll also tell you requirements for the abstract, such as word limits and things like that. And basically, the CFP should contain all of the information that you need to know to address your abstract to the right people.
1: Right. So start your abstract with the most interesting aspect of the talk. And you should be really bold in your opening sentence and paragraph because people scan. Mm-hmm. So you've got to hook them really quick or they go to the next one.
0: Remember, you only have three to 400 words to convince the reviewer to select your talk. Right. But you probably only have two sentences to convince them to read those three or 400 words. Exactly. You want to lay out your argument or the problem you're solving with your talk within that first paragraph. This is your chance to convince that reviewer that they will benefit from what you have to say.
1: One way to do this is to make it into a teaser. So maybe you don't answer the entire question, but you pose the question in such a way that now that their interest is kind of peaked.
0: Yeah, we've already said it, but you really got to grab the reviewer's attention. They are reviewing hundreds or thousands of abstracts and you want yours to stand out from the crowd. The other thing is you don't want to give your solution or your conclusion in the abstract.
1: Right. Especially this is true once you do get accepted because they reuse that text half the time. Yeah. So like that'll drive people away from
0: your talk if they already know the answer. The goal here is to tease what you're going to provide in the talk. If you can tell it in the abstract, what's the point of the talk? You want them to want you to tell more. (laughs) I want you to want me. No, sorry, I'm not going to keep singing.
1: So you just got to be the speaker equivalent of BuzzFeed.
0: Yeah, basically. (laughs) It sounds bad, but it's true. The reason
1: you've heard of them is their tactics work. Yeah. Doesn't matter whether you like them or not.
0: My thing with that is I don't mind it if you use those tactics and then you get to the talk and it provides. I did get called out on my abstract for Codeland because I said, yeah, I was going to talk about my journey through depression and then talk about helping other people through theirs. But when we got into it, I only had 15 minutes to talk, and Saran said to focus on the story. So that's what I did. I agree with her. I think it was better to do that. But I did have one person ask me about that. I told her when she asked, I was like, that's really awesome that you paid that much attention. And I explained to her what happened. She's like, yeah, I think you made the right choice. So sometimes that happens. The thing you want to do is avoid focusing too much in one area. Unless, of course, that's the focus of the talk. That's a little bit different. Yeah. But don't let yourself get bogged down in the details.
1: Yeah, that's why the word limits are there. They're to keep you from doing that. Because when somebody's excited about a topic, they'll go on for hours about it. And this keeps the reviewer from having to look at that. (laughs) like this self-defense on their part they don't want to read a book on
0: this the thing too is you want to keep your abstract as abstract as possible you don't want to get into the details of the talk because that's what the talk is for speaking of word limits you do need to stick to and use the word limits so if it's a 300 word limit use all 300 words or close to it anyway using only half looks like you did half the work yeah I mean,
1: I have seen people pull that off, but it's hard and that's an experienced speaker thing. You know, somebody that really has written a lot of talk abstracts and they've got a lot of gravitas.
0: It could also be that they wrote a really amazing abstract or a conference with a 150 word limit.
1: And then they threw the magic of Control-C, Control-V, yes. like how code gets written yeah. from Stack Overflow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the other thing too is don't go over your word limit. If you can't keep it to a word limit, you likely won't keep to your time.
1: And this is a kind of a respect thing more than yeah. anything.
0: Finally on this, if you're not accepted, ask the organizer how you can improve. Most conferences, especially the smaller ones, are willing to work with you to better your abstract for the next year. They're constantly looking for speakers and especially if you've got a good idea, but you just maybe didn't put it together the right way, they're going to want to help you out. They may explain why they didn't pick your talk or you could ask what they're looking for about the talks that they picked. I know I mentioned dev space, but I put together a talk on dealing with failure and I talked it up to the organizer and one of the other people on the selection committee at a different conference. And they're like, that sounds awesome. Please submit that. We really want it. And then I submitted it. It didn't get accepted. And I asked a different talk of mine got accepted. So I went down there and I asked him like, Hey, so I thought you were excited about this. Just out of curiosity, what could I do to improve it? And he's like, well, you were talking about failure and stuff. And like when we talked, it was really awesome. But then the abstract just made it sound like it was an hour-long talk about sprint retrospectives. And I realized I had focused way too much on one area of the talk in my abstract. Yep. So I took his input, reworked it, and got that talk accepted at Codemash. There you go. It was really useful just saying, hey, man, what can I do to improve? Now, the next question we're going to talk about is how do you prepare your slides for the presentation? You really want to spend time preparing and creating each slide to be unique but consistent. Yeah, don't copy and paste. You can get away with
1: kind of some templating type stuff, but the copy and paste stuff will burn you pretty regularly, I think. Mm -hmm. It's because you'll miss things.
0: Yeah, on that, you want to use templates for consistency across your slides. So like PowerPoint, for example, has them built in, or you can make your own templates. You can buy templates. There's a lot you can do. You can work within the template to make each slide unique, but still uniform to the entire presentation.
1: Right. And speaking of that, you want to try to use fonts that are easy to read. And use them consistently. Don't change the fonts up every slide and that kind of stuff. People get confused very easily when they're looking at PowerPoint. And that includes your visual effects too, right? Like, you know, a lot of the transitions I've seen, people really screw that up because it's distracting for the same reason.
0: Right. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. Don't fill the entire slide with text. You really need to leave some breathing room between your text just for ease of reading. But also you want to allow space for visuals such as images and animations. Well,
1: and I think with a slide, the space is what allows the person to focus on what you're saying, mm-hmm. not what's on screen, because they won't be listening to you while they're reading. Most people can't do that.
0: Yeah. You need to make your text stand out from the background. Now, black text on a white background has the best contrast. You know, those are the two most opposing colors are. All color and absence of color, but we won't go into color theory right now. It's also the most boring possible presentation. Use some color when creating your presentation.
1: Yeah. Keep your presentation easy to see with contrasting colors that work well together. And we have to add that caveat because people will do stuff like red text on blue. And you can tell on the screen like when you're close to it it's readable. But when you project that onto a wall, Uh -uh. especially if the projector is a little bit off or funky or something like it's unreadable.
0: Yeah, that's so true. (laughs) There are several online tools that help you select colors that work together. And PowerPoint even has tools built into it or the other slide building things. Uh, Google has one and Apple has one, but the other slide builders have design menus built in to help you with this. You can also use color to highlight parts of your slides. So varying colors can make things stand out from the rest of the slide, but you want to avoid using it too much or you'll kind of drown out the highlights.
1: Yeah, when everything's highlighted, nothing is highlighted. It's like project priority.
0: Right. And finally, you can find professional color palettes online. And by professional, I mean ones that are designed for professional presentations. These will tell you which colors to use for your background and your foreground. They'll also have suggested highlight colors. But the best benefit of all is within that color palette, they will have a list of colors not to use.
1: Yeah, that's extremely helpful too, especially if your color skills are not quite up to par like mine. Yeah. The next thing is to keep the content simple. So don't write big long sentences. You know, just a couple words, mostly. Yeah. So that people aren't reading excessively.
0: Only have the keywords on your slide. And don't read your slides. We talked about this earlier. There's no point in a presentation where all the presenter does is read the slides.
1: Right. Unless you expect the audience to be illiterate. Yeah. Which they're not.
0: You want to tell a story with your presentation and illustrate it with your slides. If your audience is illiterate, then use images in your slides. Don't just read your slides. Right. Tell your story and use images for them. For example, in the talk that I gave, not that my audience was illiterate, but it was a personal story. It was literally my journey and putting text in there made no sense whatsoever because what am I going to do, bullet point my life? So I used art from my friend and some of my own at some of the darker parts because thankfully she doesn't have art that dark. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad for her that she doesn't, but I used her artwork with permission. It was really awesome that she did that. She actually told me the stories behind each of the pieces that I used. And so I was able to make it flow. And I was told that the art behind me told a story that went along with my story. So finally, you want to close with the strong take-home message. Summarize your key point in the take-home message, which is basically a summary of your data and your story and make the message memorable. So I was just telling you about my talk at Codeland. My take home from that was coding has been with me throughout my life. I wouldn't say that it saved my life, but it kept coming back and helped me through my darkest points. I hope that you can find the comfort and strength in the code you write that I found in mine. And that's how I closed my talk. Now, if you hear the whole talk, it makes a lot more sense. But we also do this with the end of our episodes. We have a summary a close where we try to get the key points there. Finally, under this, create visual aids such as images, media, and animations. You really want to have more images in your slides than text. Visuals are your best friend. Will said it. The point of the slides is to emphasize what you're saying. Well, it's like salt
1: in soup. It's there to make the flavor better. It's not the soup. Right. And don't use images to decorate your text. That can be really, really annoying. Instead, use them to reinforce or illustrate your message.
0: You also want to use animations and media very sparingly. Maybe you like to draw attention to something or clarify a model, emphasize an effect. Finally, under this, the last thing you want to do is add in title pages and section breaks. You're likely going to move the slides around as you build them, so you want to wait until the end to create section headers and summaries. And I used to do this first because that's the way that I write outlines. And I had to stop because as the talk evolves, slides would move and I'd have to constantly be changing those section headers with summaries in there. So I just stopped doing that. I put together the presentation and the content slides and then I'd go and add the section headers afterwards.
1: Yeah. In other words, you put the muscles in and then you figure out where the bones go.
0: Yeah. So the final thing we're going to talk about, and this is going to be probably a shorter one, is how do you interact with the audience? And specifically, Johan asked, BJ mentioned something about making his talks very interactive. So audience participation can turn a lecture into a discussion. Conference talks can take on the feeling of being a classroom, especially if the speaker isn't very engaging. Sometimes the topic may be important and even interesting, but still a bit dry. Yeah, I've had to
1: do this with the whiteboard thing. Yeah, I start out asking them, do they know why they're afraid of the whiteboard interview? And I'm like, it's because you're rational. Yeah, And that usually gets a laugh and it gets the engagement cycle going. Yeah.
0: When the audience interacts, it can break up the monotony of sort of a single speaker talking the whole time. Now, of course, this is easier with demos and workshops because they're kind of built for it. It can be... Simple or as complex as you're comfortable with making it. So for example, a simple audience participation may involve polling the audience or asking a yes-no question that most people are going to answer the same way. Like, you know, who hates whiteboarding? Everyone raises their hand. Not that you guys can see me actually raising my hand, but you get the gist. You can typically assume the majority answer with these simpler polls. As complexity evolves, the talk turns into a discussion, which means you have more work than just speaking. So now we're going to kind of go through my method for audience participation. This is what we're going to close out with. First off, I create special audience interaction slides. These are the same theme as the other slides, but they have a unique appearance to indicate it's not a rhetorical question. And I start with a simple poll of the audience. This is like what Will was saying about making that joke that gets them laughing. Just a simple poll gets people used to responding. The next thing I do, I may ask one or two polls throughout the early part of it. I'll ask a one or two word answer. Like, what's your favorite ORM? Or something like that. And to where it's not going to be all the same answer, but it gets people comfortable speaking. It also shows you who's willing to say more. And the best thing here is like something that lists things out. The primary goal isn't the response. It's the thought behind it. So asking what's your favorite ORM isn't about getting them to tell you what their favorite ORM is. It's getting them to think about ORMs.
1: Yeah. And you can also pick out the people that are most responsive to stuff in the audience and see facial expressions. So later in the talk, you look at those people to make sure the audience is getting it.
0: Exactly. Now you're ready to ask the open-ended questions. And at this point, you need to be prepared to let the discussion lead the talk. You will become more of a facilitator than a speaker at this point. And your job will be to guide the discussion to the next point, which can be good or bad. I mean, Will and I have gained a lot of experience with this through having guests on the show. I am quite sure that podcasters who have guests on more regularly than we do are even better at it than us. What you want to do is start slow but consistent. Plan to have more lecture on the front end of the talk, then allow time for discussion towards the mid to latter part of the talk.
1: The final thing is, is have more material than you need just in case your audience doesn't participate, because the worst thing in the world is getting in there and try to get them to participate and your entire audience is shy.
0: So guys, a lot of hard work goes into planning, submitting, and creating a conference talk, and that doesn't even include practicing and giving the talk. If you are considering giving a talk, you can use this information to better prepare yourself for the process by understanding how it works and what you're getting yourself into. And if you're not considering giving a talk, we highly encourage you to give it a try. Even at the local level, it can be very rewarding. That pretty much wraps us up before we close everything out. Will, what do you have for us this week for tricks of the trade?
1: Well, I just want to point out that this episode was prompted by a listener question and Beige being able to speak at conferences was prompted by him asking me being able to speak at NSS was prompted by me asking, don't be afraid to ask the worst that somebody can say is no, or the worst that normal people are going to respond is no. And it's nothing to worry about. No is the beginning of getting to a yes on something. So just go ahead and ask, and see where it gets you. And that's all I got. Standby for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com dot com. Our theme music
0: is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at complete Dev pod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to completedevelopernetwork.com where you'll find
1: links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities.